Good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. Uh, many of you have been for a long time and are familiar with who I am. Some of you might be your first time and you're not familiar. Uh, my name is David Calvert. I've been on staff for eight years as Creative Arts Director um, and have been a part of this fellowship for 15 years um, when I began as a freshman at Campbell. And so it always is a, is a joy for me to bring that up and to be reminded of um, how, how amazing Campbell can be. But uh, Brad is on vacation. Uh, he's our lead pastor. He is typically the one preaching, and um, he is enjoying some time to rest and be with his wife. Uh, our kids have spent, our youth have spent the last week at camp, um, and it was literally the last week at camp um, before coming back here. Um, I've been at camp, and it was the last week for that camp speaking, and now summer is officially almost over. Are you prepared for this? I mean, it is like people are you know, posting on Facebook about school lists for supplies to go shopping and spend money. It's August, people. Like, it, summer's over. I'm sorry. And our, and our sermon series in Mark is actually almost officially over, too. This is the next-to-last sermon in the series in Mark. And our theme through the whole way has been the way of the king. Because the way of the disciple is the way of the king. And that's the way of the cross. So let's stand and we're going to read our text together for this morning. We're in Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. God, may the reading of your word uh, bring light into our hearts uh, and power into our lives. We pray that you be glorified as we continue to consider the empty tomb. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you may be seated. So let's, let's pretend something. This first part's not too hard to pretend. Let's pretend I'm sitting at Creek Coffee. Uh, that actually happens all the time. I spend at least some time each week working there, um, using their Wi-Fi. And uh, let's, let's pretend that I'm sitting at Creek Coffee, and I'm on the Wi-Fi, and I see on Twitter that someone has said, they just tweet out, cancer is cured, and then this little URL beside it. So I skeptically click on this link, since it's someone I usually, I usually trust, what they would retweet. And, and the, the article says there is a drug that is finally completed in testing phase that's actually able to target and eradicate individual cancer cells without causing any damage to surrounding tissues. And this process takes maybe one to two months, depending on the stage of the cancer diagnosed, and 100% of patients have gone into... Full remission. So now, now what would you do in this moment? I would immediately Google it. 
That's right, Google is a verb. And so I would Google it to research it, and then I would immediately retweet it because then I would immediately call three or four people close to me who have all had tumors or cancerous cells in their bodies in the last couple years because there is no way that I could keep quiet about this news. I'd keep talking about it. I mean, even CNN and Fox News would probably agree. Well, maybe not, but they'd at least agree to keep talking about it. Um, And the implications of this, it would be impossible to keep it quiet. Even if this news, maybe it originated in some little unknown lab somewhere in Europe uh, where there's maybe two staff and they don't even have Facebook there. And it would take, it would literally still take merely hours for the whole world to know about this news. Cancer is defeated. You tell everyone you know who has had cancer or has the risk of it. So some of you may know where this is going. At the risk of making it simplistic. We have better news than even this. Death and sin are defeated. Everyone you know has sin or the risk of more sin. Have you told them this news? That's exactly what this is. The gospel is news. It's not advice. So at camp this past week, I got to make this point um, because it's it's important. (laughs) that There's a distinction that needs to be made. Uh, there are so many youth who have grown up in the church, and all of our kids, we long for that to be their story. And then a lot of us are churched folk. But what happens is we often craft a new law to help us follow God. And then when we tell people about what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, we tell them the things that we do or that we don't do. We sometimes don't even tell them what Jesus did. And that's a distinction. (laughs) The gospel is news. It's not advice. The gospel is not advice on how to live a better life. It's the news that we can actually live. It's not advice on how to make money or be good enough so that God is going to love you or experience material blessings. It's the news that God has given us everything we need for life in Christ. That Jesus was perfect for us. That he died for us. And because he died, you don't have to truly die. That's news that every person on the planet needs to hear. And that's what we're all trying to achieve anyway, right? Not dying. Nobody wants to die. We fight it all the time. Particularly in America, we use all the resources that we can muster uh, to fight something that, apart from the gospel, is terribly frightening. Apart from the person and work of Jesus, death is rightfully terrifying. And so we run from it. We ignore its presence, especially if we're young. Praise God that Jesus, who was young, I'm 33, so I can say that and and still be rightful in saying that. Praise God that Jesus did not run from or ignore its presence. He didn't run from death, but rather he faced it humbly. And for the joy set before him, he endured it. And death crumbled in his presence. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. I will be swiping there on my iPad. Uh, But at camp this week, they were not allowing devices, so it was actually a really cool moment um, where there's 100 youth and they're all flipping the pages and you're hearing that turn. You can't can't replicate that. It's a beautiful sound to hear people looking in the scriptures together. Um, But all you hear are little squeaks from my fingers uh, as I'm swiping. So uh, if you have a device, swipe there. It's 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Here in this very first section, 
Paul is responding to some of the questions that had arisen at the church at Corinth. Um, because at, at Corinth Community Church, if you will, uh, there were some who were beginning to question whether resurrection uh, was even scientifically feasible. And so Paul writes in the power of the Spirit a very clear, direct response to their questions. And he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, if you need to ask them, though some have fallen asleep or died. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one to untimely born, I don't even deserve it, he appeared also to me. And so what he's doing in responding in this way, he's telling them of that which is of first importance. So it's like an abstract of the gospel, if you will. It's, an, it's a simplified version. But when you boil it down, Jesus' resurrection is necessary for the gospel to make sense. It is an element of first importance. So he says, this is of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised according to the scriptures. And then jump down to verses 12 through 19, because here's where he starts to deal with it uh, in very blunt terms. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, logically, right? And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But I love verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he can say, in fact, because he just laid that out in the first part of the chapter. He said, it's a fact. You can go ask one of those 500 people. You can ask any of the apostles. At this point, they're still living and ministering. Yes, some have died. And that led to some of these questions. Some of those who had been firsthand witnesses were not there to give testimony anymore. They were not able to Snapchat it to their friends anymore. They were not able to share it in that first-person account. And so it was becoming you know, stretched out as the second person heard it and the third person. And all of us have a root of sin in our hearts. We're going to be skeptical sometimes. And so Paul is dealing with that directly. He says, look, take that skepticism and shove it because these people saw it. And they're still around to tell you about it. So ask them. Paul lands it by reminding them of what he just pointed out. In fact, Christ has been raised. If you don't believe Paul, ask one of the 500 or one of the other apostles who saw the resurrected Christ, who ate with the resurrected Christ, and who heard him teach the Old Testament to them. That is probably the thing I'm most jealous of. I would love to share some grilled fish with Jesus, but I would love for Jesus to teach me from the Old Testament, which he did for all of those who are gathered. So let's jump back to Mark. And we're going to look at this specific testimony of Mark, this witness 
uh, to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to walk through uh, this first part of Mark 16, starting in verse 1. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary, Mary, and Salome bought spices so that might go and anoint him. So what that means is that their intent to anoint Jesus meant they had literally no expectation of a missing body. Like they spent money on spices to go. They were not expecting this at all. And, and what's, I guess, ironic is that Jesus had mentioned this you know, little fact that he would rise in three days. Not once, not twice, but three different times in public teaching. Like it's not like a little aside to just Peter. He, made a, he said this in front of all of them. I'm going to rise in three days. But the women are operating under what they stood to be, understood to be the way of nature. And all of us recognize the way of nature. Things die. Everything in creation follows the pattern of death. That's how it's always been. So they were acting in love uh, toward their rabbi and teacher and friend. And they were totally unprepared for what they would find. And I love how Mark, you know, he says the sun had risen. So is Mark just being clever or was that just beautiful uh, to use that uh, right there? So oftentimes, those of us who grew up in the church, we kind of picture the, uh, the flannel board stone. Flannel graph, anybody tracking with me here? Flannel board stone, which is really nice and round like a wheel and it slides really easily off of the tomb. Uh, that's what we envision when we think about these things that we've grown up with. Some of you... Pretend like there's a stone on your iPad and it slides really easy. That's what I'm trying to get across. The stone was not like that. The stone was not just a simple wheel. It was very large, like Mark points out. And it actually sat in a rut in the ground so that when it rolled into place, boom, it was going to stay there. I mean, there were no handholds on the inside for somebody to wheel it back. There probably weren't even any handholds on the outside. No one was intended to roll this away. It was intended to be there. And so once it's dropped in, it would take considerable effort to move it. And so the ladies had a legitimate issue on their hands. Uh, and so they're kind of thinking out loud, who is going to help us move this thing? Because we need to anoint the body as is tradition. And, and I don't know who we're going to ask. They weren't even aware of you know, thinking about the fact that guards had been placed at the tomb, which we get from the other synoptic accounts. As you read Matthew and Luke to supplement this full picture of the resurrection, we realize that there were some guards there. The ladies had known that. Maybe they would have thought, oh, we'll ask them to move it. And then, yet again, they'd still be surprised at what they found. In verse 5, we move into this man dressed in white. And they were alarmed. So one of the ways we know that this was an angel is because angels are always saying, don't be afraid, right? Like, that is literally the first words that come out of their mouths most of the time. Because... uh, the way that Mark describes them, I'm sure he is still simplifying things, but Mark's description of, of the angel makes it very clear that the ladies were particularly and specifically terrified of this person. So A, they were not expecting to find an open tomb. B, they were not expecting to find no body of Jesus in an open tomb. And C, they were not expecting a person who was glowing in the space where Jesus' body should have be in an open tomb. They weren't expecting to be open. So like, Literally every, every expectation blown out of the water as they approach the tomb. And so they are rightfully terrified. Nothing is as it should be. Everything that is normal has been flipped. So when you think about it, I mean, 
We'll come back to this kind of fear reflex that they had because it plays a role again in just a moment. But remember, remember Paul's words of first importance. Christ lived, he died, and was buried, and was raised, all according to the scriptures, all verified by witnesses. So at this moment, they are witnesses to the place where he was buried, and they're witnesses to this in verse 6. The angel's incomparable, unmistakable words. He has risen. Take a look. There is nothing to hide. This is the most momentous message ever spoken from one human being to another. This is the best possible news those women could hear in that moment. And it is the best possible news that any of us can hear this morning. Two millennia later. Kent Hughes puts it this way. I love this word picture. Uh, When we think about the model that scripture gives us of humbling and exaltation. Think about the way that Paul describes it in Philippians. Jesus humbled himself and he was exalted. And the psalmist tells us that all the time. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So this, this humbling and exaltation. Jesus' death was the ultimate humiliation. And as Paul says in Philippians, he was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. But in God's model of those who humble themselves being lifted up, are exalted, imagine, just try to imagine the power of God's exaltation that burst forth that morning. Because Jesus had been pushed down, down, down. And in an explosive moment, the grave could no longer hold him. He is risen, just as he said. Now go, is what the angel says. Not just go, but go to the disciples and Peter. And so this had to have been a beautiful moment. Because remember, Peter's denial. We just dealt with that on Sunday morning just a couple weeks ago. It is in some ways the most clear-cut betrayal of Jesus' trust. Peter's denial of him within earshot of the Lord, most likely. And in his resurrection, God intentionally extends forgiveness to Peter. And thus, there is no way that what you have done, what I have done, or said about Jesus is not similarly forgiven. Forgiveness extends to Peter in the same way forgiveness is extended to all of us through Christ's resurrection. There is nothing that needs separate us from God because of Jesus. As we think about like a typical structure of a story, with a climax you know, near the end or sometimes at the end, uh, this chapter is the season finale of Mark, if you will. All the hype is leading to this moment, all the buildup, all of Mark's intentional quick movement through the story, it leads to this. And the culmination of Jesus' work is his death and resurrection. And all the work of Mark recording this account it points to these moments that we're exploring. So in verse 8, again, we see the fear reflex. They're terrified. Not only did the angel freak them out, but the lack of Jesus' body, that was certainly going to freak them out, but the words that this angel announced, he has risen. They literally, they had no category for these, these words, no category for how to understand and process this. There's nothing normal about this. There's nothing in their realm of experience to prepare them for this. 
The th- closest thing is, G- is Lazarus. And, and at that point, it was Jesus doing the thing. But, and people were able to see that happen. Now they show up and there is nobody. And this angel announces things. Like there is no precedent in history for this moment. So often we too react with fear to things that we can't comprehend happening around us. It doesn't seem real, right? It's totally legitimate for them to have this reaction at first to what they've just been seen, what they saw, what they've been told to do. I mean, I'm, I'm blessed to be married to a wonderful, godly woman. And so in being in proximity to a woman, I realized that women need to feel the feels. They've got to feel things out. And in two seconds, they've been confronted with all of reality shifting. They've got to feel some things <laughs> to get through this. So in that moment, immediately, they're, they're terrified. And think about the fear reflex that we did see with Lazarus. So Lazarus is raised from death. Okay, this should have been a cause of rejoicing for the religious leaders, but rather because they didn't understand what was happening, they reacted in fear and they wanted to kill the person that just raised someone from the dead. That's the power of fear. So as the ladies leave, they don't don't speak to anybody else on the road because they need to feel these things out. They, they need the time it takes to return to the apostles, to process what they just heard and saw, to feel out their fear before they arrive and kind of relive it all again and telling it. The fear reflex, I think it's initially still with them as they go, but they remember what the angel said, and I bet with every step, fear gives way to immeasurable joy. So when they arrive breathlessly with the other disciples there, they have the privilege. They have the privilege of uttering for the first time the words on which the faith of millions rests. He is risen. There seems to be a great swath of our society who want proof of the resurrection of Jesus. This is a really awkward word to read a whole bunch of times and type a bunch of times. And it started to like kind of resonate emotionally with the fact that it's kind of awkward to ask for proof sometimes. But that's what our society wants. They want proof of the resurrection of Jesus. So, well, we can start with the historical things rooted in our text here. On a given date, in a defined place, the man Jesus, having been crucified and buried two days earlier... he. He comes forth from the tomb. This is verifiable since there is no body, right? At the very least, empirically speaking, there is no body. Because consider this. If the Jewish leaders had stolen the body, they would have made a big spectacle of it to to shame the followers of the way. If the apostles had stolen it, one of them would have cracked under the weight of martyrdom. So for the skeptic that's here this morning, or the one that you know, because you know one, at the very least, where's the body? There's no category for this event historically. Never before or since has this occurred in this way in history. And so we know that this is a true account because of the women's response, right? Think about as Mark is recording this. I mean, what is the response to something for which you have no category? Something you've never experienced before and you see it. I mean, if you are on a cruise and you see a whale flipping through the water, you've never had an opportunity to see that before. You're speechless. 
You may even like question what you just saw, unless you had your phone and you were taking a bunch of pictures. Like in those moments, skepticism, being overwhelmed, it can lead to anxiety, sometimes even, even fear. In this moment, there's no category for what they're experiencing. So Mark, if he were just making this up, why wouldn't the women be immediately excited? Jesus isn't dead anymore. Let's, let's have a, a celebration on the road back. Why wouldn't Mark have recorded it that way? Because he doesn't need to make it up. I mean, if, if this were happening in a, in a screenplay, if this were a movie, a dramatization, then maybe they would leap for joy and immediately be able to process what just happened. But rather, their response is reasonable, historically, because nothing like this had ever happened before. We can trust what Mark is saying. Think about maybe your experience with the gospel. When you first heard of a man's blood having power to cleanse you, or a man dying brutally and then being brought back to life, were you skeptical? Were you initially maybe even afraid of the power that was being talked about? When we take a minute, a minute to, to consider the women's perspective historically, Mark's portrayal of events comes into focus. It makes sense. And then historically, it's, it's also, I mean, it's not humorous, but it's unfortunate that the testimony of women was not admissible in court proceedings. Um, so historically, if Mark were trying to impress his readers, why would he cite women as the first to have the amazing privilege of witnessing the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus? If he were trying to make a historical court case, but, but Mark's not concerned with building a legal case for Jesus' resurrection. He's concerned with telling the truth. So why else would Mark record it this way unless it were simply true? Another proof of sorts for Jesus' resurrection is manifest in, uh, in martyrdom. Like I mentioned earlier, the apostles, without exception, died proclaiming this news. Paul practically says no one who saw the resurrected Jesus could deny it. Like if you saw a man who was dead, now alive before you, you're not going to be able to deny that. History shows that all who professed to have seen him went to their deaths confessing that it was true. Conspiracies, they're not worth that. Hallucinations, they crumble under that weight. Truth doesn't. Another potential proof is Mark's record of Peter's testimony. I mean, that's what this book is. All through the book, we've seen and heard things as Peter may have seen them. So if Mark were trying to write an account uh, <clears throat> that would you know, be in a Jerusalem Times bestseller, like, wouldn't Peter be a bit more heroic? Wouldn't he be a little bit cleaned up? I mean, edited just a little? Maybe a couple fewer betrayals or some overblown misunderstandings. Let's like, keep those to the side. No. Mark tells it like it is. Because the reality of sin, we can't abridge that. And Peter knows this. So he doesn't hold back in telling. And then we learn from John how Peter was specifically asked for by Jesus after his resurrection. Like, go and tell the disciples and Peter. And then in John we find, in this scene after the resurrection, when they're eating together, Jesus sitting down, he says to Peter, as they sit across the fire together, he says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter has the chance to repent in that intimate moment over a shared meal with Jesus and say yes. Like, how he wasn't weeping through that, I don't know. Days earlier, he had been denying Jesus 
in public. And now he has the opportunity to apologize in person and to affirm what he believes. Yes, I love you. Can you even imagine, just let's shorten it down. Imagine Peter's emotional roller coaster over just 72 hours of his life. So we go from the intimate setting of Passover. They are reclining at table together. They are sharing the most momentous meal of the Jewish calendar together. And then he gets scolded by Jesus in Gethsemane for falling asleep. And then the vehement, repeated denial. I don't know him. And then Jesus' brutal, shocking death. And then the sense of loss, the grieving, the mourning. Then the breathlessly excited words from the women, Jesus is alive and he wants you to know. Hear it this way though. Jesus is alive and he wants you to know. This word is for each of us. And it is for each person that we know as well. We have the overwhelming privilege of speaking these momentous words to anyone and everyone we know. The most world-shattering, reality-changing words ever spoken, we have the privilege of celebrating those, proclaiming those to everybody that we know. And yet, the only proof that deeply matters to your neighbor, to your family, to your coworker, is the proof of the spirit that raised Christ from the dead living in you. Because Jesus told us, they will know we're followers of the risen Christ by our love for one another as the people of God. Our community needs to see this God-enabled, resurrection-fueled love in action as we serve one another. And there is proof in the hope of resurrection and the way that hope then sustains us. Because the hope of resurrection and the power of the Spirit sustains Elise. It is the same hope that sustains Debbie and Barbara. It's the only hope that has filled Chad and Sarah. It's the sure hope that empowered Brad when Linda died. It's the hope that my family clings to in the wake of my grandfather's passing earlier this year. The hope of resurrection is the same hope that sustained Peter and James through their martyrdom. It sustained the Apostle John through his exile. It is the sure and certain hope that has propelled this life-changing news to the ends of the earth. He is risen and he will come again. Confessing to believe this resurrection thing is true what we're confessing to believe is that this is not the end. If it is indeed true for you, then it drastically affects how you live here and now. So Tim Keller gives us this thought. Why is it hard to face suffering? Why is it hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it's going to cost you money or reputation or maybe even your life? Why is it so hard to face your own death or the death of loved ones? It's so hard because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. If you can't dance, 
but you long to dance? Jesus' resurrection is a promise that when we are resurrected, you'll dance perfectly. If you're lonely, you will have perfect love. If you're empty, you will be completely satisfied. Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee of our resurrection when he returns. And if we live in light of this, what can people do to us? What can people say? What weight do our anxieties really bear in the light of Jesus' defeat of death? The gospel, the hope of glory is made manifest in your suffering, in your joy, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your poverty. This is the proclamation and proof of Jesus' resurrection that the world needs to see. The gospel made manifest in your suffering, in your joy, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your poverty. This is the proclamation and proof that people want to see the gospel brought to life in you. You can make the historical argument. You can make the logical argument. That will sometimes help, maybe be a foundation. But the, the power of the Spirit living in you, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, living in you, working itself out, working out your faith, that's the proof that people want to see. Because by the power of God, Jesus is alive. By the grace of God, so are we. Let us be disciples who follow the king, even to the cross. Because the cross is not the end. Death is defeated once and for all. He is risen. Hallelujah. Would you pray with me? When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Praise be to God who has given us his word, who has given us ears to hear his word this morning and to hear the truth proclaimed, the very best news ever that could be shared, as David has pointed out this morning. Live in it today. Live in it this week. Live in it until he returns. And all God's people, with one voice, say, Amen. Amen.